Thank you for joining this episode of the Comics Corner. Please note that the opinions expressed on this episode of the Comics Corner are the opinions only of those who express them and do not necessarily represent Comics Corner, Don't Sue Us Please, or April is the Cruelest Month. Please be aware that there are spoilers ahead for the issue that we're going to talk about. Thank you for joining us and have a great day. And welcome to John's Comics Corner, everybody. I am John. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, today, we have uh, a very special and near and dear to my heart group of people. We have, as almost always, my partner in crime, my buddy in comics, the man who once confessed to me that he was almost positive that Joan Crawford was J. Edgar Hoover's drag persona, Mr. Matthew Klein. Hello, everybody. And in the spirit of improv, I will say yes and. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. <laughs> uh, and next up, we have one of our favorite guests and actually a former guest host of this show. Um, one of my favorite people in the world, one of the coolest people in the entire multiverse, the man who says that there is no real Spider-Man other than Ben Riley. Mr. Jeremiah J. <laughs> Thank you for having me back, John. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Um, and last but never least, we have the embodiment of the words gentle soul, the man who believes that the only true gaydar in the world is asking someone if their favorite X-Man is Dazzler, Mr. Nick Osborne. I couldn't have asked for a better intro. <laughs> oh, so great. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> well, you know, you guys always blush when I say just nice things. So I thought instead of going from the sublime, actually, that is correct. I went from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> There's just no way around it. What can I say? Um, and so we are here to continue our discussion on Wonder Woman Historia of the Amazons. We are doing book two today, although uh, in full um, confession, I am sure we will be bouncing back and forth to book one. Yes, book two. I said book two. You did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Historia, book two. Yeah, I said book two. Matthew keeps, keeps throwing, I don't know, like really strange eighth grade gang signs or something. I'm not sure what's happening over there, so... Um, so, <laughs> so we are here to discuss Wonder Woman Historia book two. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick with art by Jean Ha. Wesley Wong is the colorist. Clayton Cowles is the letterer. Um, and with the exception of the writer and the letterer, this is a uh, brand new creative team. Um, new artist, new colorist. Um, so let's Let's start off with a question, um, which I'm going to throw to uh, Jeremiah first. Um, how did the change in art, how did, did it affect you? How did you feel? Um, Gene Ha is an absolutely incredible. Um, mm -hmm. it, I feel like it was a nice uh, sidestep. It wasn't a step down. It wasn't a step up. It, was, it helped continue the story thread very well. Um, i trying to say that he's a better Wonder Woman artist than Phil Jimenez is uh, a difficult thing to say, but 
I liked his art for this story. I felt, I feel as though if Jimenez did this issue, um, a lot of it would be lost within how complex Jimenez can be. Whereas Ha, all the little things that he hides in this issue, um, Jimenez would probably just lose it in the background of all the like beautiful bright colors and whatnot. Um, I, I, I prefer Gene's artwork for this issue specifically. Yeah, for me, I think the thing that struck me the most was finding an artist that is correct for the story you're telling. And I feel like the first one was so fabulous and so overwhelming and kind of um, a feast for the eyes because it was about the goddesses, whereas this is about the Amazons. Nick is shaking his head, so I'm going to assume he agrees with me. But Nick, elaborate, please. Yeah, you're, you're kind of touching on, you know, where I was coming from with the artwork approach. The first issue blew me away so much. It was such a showstopper and unlike anything I've ever seen. And I didn't get that feeling from issue two, where it was like, you know, this isn't unlike any other book that I've ever seen, though it matches the story really well. And it, it caters really well to the events that are happening, the characterizations and what's going on. I, I get that match. Uh, but it did not hit that level of like, I'm pulling pages out of this to hang on my wall uh, in framing them because it's so spectacular. Uh, that is an undeniable impact that I experienced while reading this issue that's sort of separate from, you know, quality discussions or how much I enjoyed it. It was just a thing that existed. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at with the artwork. Yeah, I, I loved it. I think there's a there's a subtlety to it that doesn't necessarily, it's kind of, it's kind of like listening to Beyonce sing versus listening to Billie Holiday sing, if that makes sense. Um, Matthew, how, how did you feel? I'm glad that there was so much time in between the two mm. because of the dramatic change and shift in the art style. I feel like had this been out the week after issue one, I would have been much more in a, like, I, I have to compare this. Like my brain wouldn't allow me not to compare the two. Um, so I was really appreciative actually for the break in between because it really allowed me to sort of come into this fresher and without the expectation of you're following the greatest artwork of Philomena's career. Um, have at it, Gene. Um, so so I, I agree. I think that the there's there's an elegance, there's a nuance, there's a lot more acting going on with the characters that Gene does really, really well here. Um, because this is, there's such an internal conflict going on. There's such an internal struggle. And I think he captures that very well. Whereas the first issue is a very, you're, you're in a grander, more mythos, historical kind of vibe. And this is much more micro in terms of its lens uh, that it's going with. And I think that the, I think Gene Ha does a really, really, really wonderful job. And again, I feel like had I read this a week after the first one, I wouldn't have liked it as much because I would have been too much in my head against what Philomena's had done. And to Nick's point, Philomena's truly some of the, be the best work of his career, maybe some of the best work in comics in the last few years that makes you want to go, I need a poster of every single page. That's not what this issue is designed to do from the art. That is what it was designed to do in the first issue. So I'm trying to take it on its own terms in that sense. Yeah, what about it, you, John? Where do you well, so I had done what I 
was sure I was going to do, which is I reread the first issue every day for a week up until I got the second issue. And I, I, beyond um, Alan Moore's uh, 49ers, I was not terribly familiar with Gene Ha's work. I knew his work and I'd seen random things, but it was, he was not somebody that I followed. But for me, I just thought it was so beautiful and it was almost like, this is not a fair comparison, but I'm gonna make it anyway, because it's the best I can do off the top of my head after a very long day. Um, for me, it was reading, it was like reading two different translations of the same story where you're going, oh, these are both really interesting. This one picks up this and this one picks up that. And I really liked it. Um, for me, I, yeah, this, this to me didn't, you know, and I was kind of interested in see, I'm not a social media person, so I only read a little bit online, but kind of seeing um, the response to it and seeing how just sort of, you know, there, I didn't feel like there was a break in stride at all. It felt like it was just a, you know, I, I will say, like, it's interesting that you brought up the social media reception because I, I have followed it. And I think that that level of grandiose that was brought into the first issue really helped for a social media presence because putting any page on that, on your, you know, tweeting it, posting about it on Insta, anything like this, it looks great. It makes people talk about it. I didn't see near as much of that coming from this issue of it being celebrated for just this, you know, visual masterpiece. Um, there's a lot of praise for, you know, how it's continuing the story, how it's set into the mythos, but that element of like, this is art that you just have to see no matter what. So I'm going to take a page and post it on Twitter. Um, I didn't see nearly as much of that. And I think like some of that is just sort of, you know, what this issue is designed to do, but it's undeniably something that I've noticed a shift in from the first issue where it was on my timeline just 24 seven, as opposed to this issue where it's kind of your core audience. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Nick, you're talking about you're on social media like it's your job or something. Are you okay? <laughs> is this a healthy amount to be on social media? What you you're tra what what do you what do you something I think we can all admit social media? I think we can all admit about 10 minutes a day is the healthiest amount to be on social media. I would oh, disagree. No. I think one minute a day is maybe the healthiest. Well, me. the only reason I say 10 minutes is because I can't remember my freaking password every time I try to log on to Twitter to figure out how to turn <laughs> off the notifications so they stop telling me that I have notifications so I don't ever have to log in again. But that's a separate story. Nick, help your coworker for goodness sake. <laughs> I, it's, I'm beyond. If I'm, 10 minutes is the limit, I am so in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just a recommended on, by Dr. Just, John. But. Oh, sorry. Um, I just want to piggyback on something that I was just thinking about with everyone's responses. Um, with the Phil Jimenez issue, uh, reading it digitally had a much bigger effect. Um, how do we feel about this issue digitally? I mean, there were definitely pages that I feel would have been better digitally. I mean, I always read hard copy when I can, um, but I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything not reading it digitally. Whereas with the first issue, I definitely felt like I was missing out on some things, not seeing the whole picture kind of. Um, does anyone think that this issue suffers from that as well or no? I think because there's less, there, to, to Nick's use the phenomenal word grandiose was Phil Jimenez, right? Bill Menace's artwork was made for oversized pages, right? Like it was, it was really with that in mind because this is a different type of story and it's a lot more 
intimate, I don't think it requires, I don't think you miss out in the same way, like you're missing out on that sort of vibe. But it's also, I don't think it's designed to be either. You know, that's the the, the flip side of it is like, are you missing out? No, but that's not a knock against it, right? Like it's because it's not what it's designed to do in terms of this, this style. Um, I, I think there's actually some really, really fascinating and lovely subtleties and detail in here that certainly reward very close reading of the artwork. Um, I think that the way that they're playing with like faces in the woods and the trees and, and like there's a lot of really beautiful, subtle work being done. But I don't think that that it, it's again, that sort of work, I don't think was designed to be like, you got to put it digitally and blow it up and da da da. da. It's, it's more just like, this is very cool. And if you're paying attention, you'll notice how it's affecting the mood of the page and the vibe and, and adding some context to it. I don't know. That's just where I come in on it. Where do you guys feel? Uh, so I don't actually, I rarely read digitally unless it's like a library thing um, because I can't find the book somewhere. And I had bought all of the copies of this immediately. So I have the physical ones. Um, Nick, you read more digitally than anybody else, mm -hmm. I think. Probably. I Most of my reading is digital. And I did check this one out digitally beforehand. Um, and I did notice that uh, like Matthew was saying, there is a, a design element here where it really wasn't capturing what the first issue set out to capture. Uh, so I did notice some of that difference, but it's really it's really something to see that I, I didn't expect this one to work as well in digital. Uh, there's some nuance in, in the character expressions, uh, like they were saying and everything. I, I think there's some of that into it. Uh, but this issue, it works well for the format it's in. And I didn't really notice a boost or a better, you know, reading experience by going on digital like I did from the first one. And I, I don't mean to be controversial here, but I think there's a sense of risk taking in the first issue that I didn't really get in the second issue. The quality is there. The execution is there. But the the format of what we have with the black label and the risk taking that was done in the layouts and the execution of the book and the effort to pursue that grandiose feel led to pages and artwork that I wanted on my iPad so I could zoom in and see all the, the tiny details. I didn't get that, that urge from this book. Even though I checked it out digitally, I, did, I didn't find myself going back and wanting to just overanalyze everything. And I felt like that was because the, the layouts, the execution of it worked well for the story, but there just wasn't as much risk-taking that had me interested in the execution of the book. Uh, and it, I felt that in the digital experience. And actually, that's interesting because that kind of brings us to the next point that I wanted to, which is this is so much, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but this is so much more of an intimate story. It really is. <clears throat> I don't even know that I would say this is the Amazon story as much as I would say this is Hippolyta's story. Um, totally and agree. I, and I think what was interesting is we pick up about five or six months from the end of the first book to the beginning of this one. <clears throat> but even if we you look at the first four pages, which are exactly, you know, not exactly, but they are set up the same way that Jimenez set it up, there is a much warmer quality about these pages. It is not a sort of worship of the goddesses as it was in the first one. It's a much closer relationship of sort of having them watch over us and, and having us, meaning I, I say this as if we're Amazons, but having them watch over the Amazons and having them uh, do that. And what I 
think is fascinating about Wonder Woman, and here's where we go into the weird, crazy spiral of my brain. Um, you cannot do Wonder Woman without, you cannot write Wonder Woman or read Wonder Woman without having a sense of faith and religion in it. Um, and did you feel a difference between how the goddesses were treated in the first one and how the goddesses were treated in this second book? Um, you know, I certainly have my own feelings. And again, I think there's a much warmer relationship. Um, I think that there's still a sense of grandeur and still a sense of awe, but it feels like it is, um, it feels more maternal here as opposed to feeling more um, separated. Jeremiah, how did you feel? Uh, I fully, fully agree with that. Is uh, It definitely feels like we're closer to it. Um, the, the goddesses don't feel so far away in a sense uh, is the best way my brain can uh, describe it. Um, with the Amazons, them, them bringing them in the, almost the initiation of it all. Mm -hmm. And like, who, who are we going to belong to? Kind of that, figuring that all out. You feel the presence of the houses over them, but it's, it doesn't feel as far away. It feels as though they are paying very close attention and they, they're having a very meaningful, watchful eye. Yeah. Um, um, now, Matthew, you are a classicist. You are a playwright, a screenwriter, a comic book writer. Um, and uh, Kelly Sudakonic has um, very much said that this is kind of a um, <clears throat> Homeric epic um, with a woman at the center of the story. Um, how are you feeling about that? And there's a reason that I'm asking that and I'll get to it in a second, but I wanna put you on the spot first. As, as far as like structuring it to be a Homeric? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, again, it's, it's even called book one, book two, book three, which is a very like ancient poem kind of, kind of approach with it. If you look at the Iliad, if you look at Homer's epics um, and, and in many ways, each book will have sort of a different lens character with them. Like the first book of this is clearly Hera's story. Mm -hmm. This one is clearly Hippolytus. I'll be really interested to see what happens in the third and fourth and I'm sorry, in the third and just sort of like how it will come together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely get that vibe with it. I do. I, again, I'm, I'm wondering how it's going to land. I'm wondering at what point this story ends is my biggest question right now. I, I'm very curious as to where this story ends and, and why it's going to end where it will end. You know, I'm very intrigued by that question. Well, the plan, if it gets nine books, is to actually end the moment Steve Trevor crash lands on the island. Oh, is that the plan? That oh, is the plan. Damn it, John. Why did you spoil that for me? It's, now, it's online. You spend time online. I don't spend time like Nick spends time. I'm not going to find One this stuff out. <laughs> um. um is it is it meant to be nine books though? I thought it it's, was going to be shorter than that. That's well, they they agree, DC greenlit three, and depending right. on the sales, they're going to see 
from there. Um, I doubt anyone from DC is listening to this, but they did green light 12 issues of Batman Catwoman, and yet they can't seem to green light 12, nine issues of Wonder Woman Historia. That's bad, bad example, sir. That there's Shade. so much more behind the scenes. <laughs> the Tom King run, yeah. <laughs> so much more behind the scenes, behind the, the Bat Cat wedding that didn't happen. There's contract I, issues. There's a whole other I'm, thing between bad. Believe me, I'm throwing I'm throwing shade for a reason. I I know I'm throwing shade, but I'm throwing shade for a reason. Look, let's Matt also appears, be very clear. Uh, appears Poor very DC. offended by that. Look, look, I'm also going to give DC some slack right now because it sounds like an absolute cluster over there with the the next merger with Discovery and Warner's. So I I'm not putting any shade on DC on anybody working at DC right now. They have enough that they are sweating over. They're losing sleep right now. So I'm, I'm not going to throw that shade. Well, Matthew is nicer than I am. So, um, yeah. Yes, and. So, Nick, one of the things that we talked about last time was how kind of a cursory reading of this book, someone who's not really understanding <clears throat> what I think Kelly Sue DeConnick is going for, and I don't speak for Kelly Sue DeConnick, I've never met her before, although she seems very lovely, um, was that it could come, you know, someone could read it as like, oh, this is about how awful men are. Um, and we obviously, all of us disagreed with that um, because we think it's much deeper and smarter and frankly, just greater than that. Um <clears throat> And I want to know, did you get that same feeling with this? And again, there's a reason that I'm asking this, but I'm going to, it's going to tie into why I asked Matthew that previous question. Oh, interesting. Now I'm more interested just to get to where you're going with this. Um, but A, I did love the impression of what I assume to be online reactions. That's the voice, at least I hear in my head. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> I do think that this is, I love how you used uh, maternal, I believe was the word you used. Uh, it's very intimate and it feels like a more, I don't want to use the word narrow, but maybe a more focused uh, vision of that aspect where it isn't just something of like men are bad. And that's the overall point of the story. It's that there, there is oppression, that there is the, like these, this form of disenfranchisement that it's tackling, that it's doing it on a myth, on a mythic level, on a grand level that's using these DC heroes in this lore. And I think we're able to take that, that first issue that catches a cast, a really wide net. We're able to focus that in on something that's a little bit more intimate feeling, but it still captures those same, those same feelings and it evokes those same emotions that you're getting from uh, from Hera and, and beyond into especially that that final confrontation where you've got Zeus and Apollo and and what's going on here before we get too far into spoilers is where that really comes to light. But I do think that it, it does capture a more intellectual approach into the subjugation subjugation of women that has been experienced and putting that into the lore. Uh, but it's not something where it's so heavy handed and it's something where you're, you're seeing people quote tweet certain panels, pulling them out and, you know, going on rants and things about this because it's able to convey that message in a way that's a little bit more concise, a little bit more intellectual and the execution is there. Um, these are things that are outside of the artwork, the visual expression, all these things. It's handling of themes is a bit more nuanced. So it can do something that's really powerful in a way that uh, I don't think somebody coming into it would be like, oh, this was just a hate book on men. It doesn't read like that because it, it handles it in a much deeper way. And it's to the book's success, in my opinion, really. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. And this one, this is a question that I'm going to throw out to anybody who wants to jump in first. But this is why I asked that question of both 
Matthew and Nick, is because when I read it, this doesn't necessarily feel like a specific Homeric epic to me, although my, I'm going to say it's been 40 years, probably not that many. It's probably been about 30 years since I've read any of Homer's Iliad. Um, but it actually reads to me as very much a sort of look at how modern and contemporary society not only fails people, but how it actually sets people up against each other. And the specific example that I'm thinking is when Antiope says to Hippolyta, well, you're free. Now you have to go do it on your own. And we do that constantly with people. We do it with people who are who have addiction problems. We do it with people who um, are in uh, abusive relationships. We go, well, now you're out, you're on your own. And there's this constant, and it, it in addition to having that sort of, <clears throat> I don't want to use the word indictment because that's not the right word I'm looking for, but in, in addition to having that focus on how we treat each other, it's also interesting because it sets it it sets a really interesting example of how people in marginalized communities are often pitted against each other because we're continually told there's only so much room at the table and you can either you can sit there or you can sit there, but both of you can't sit there. So am I anyone who wants to jump in and cut me off, feel free. Because <laughs> I can see all of you wanting to say something. <laughs> everybody's mic staying muted. Nobody jump in at once there. <laughs> That's a, it's, I think it's a great take on it because like we're, we're seeing some of that and at some, at some level, you know, who am I to speak to these themes and, and it's accomplishment of it or it's success. But I don't think that it's a stretch to get to that, to say, you know, they're, they're handling an issue here where, I mean, you have all these people, there's a huge portion of this book that's about belonging we see it in the explanation of these different tribes of these different groups uh the the search for belonging the pursuit of it uh finding a place for it you're seeing all these things bubble up and and where that's an expiration of because the the juxtaposition of the end of somebody who is larger than life sitting on this huge throne basically who takes up the majority of these pages, uh, as opposed to this more intimate, limited view leading up to it, you can see that in the visuals, you can see it in the, the handling of the themes and everything and how it creates that story. So you can see that sense of belonging, but whether or not you can, you know, interpret that into where we're at in our society, how we're treating disenfranchised people and where that looks like that's where the bridge or the connection is but it's undeniably on the panel. Like you can see that. And I think that's um, a success to the creative team, but also some of that nuance that helps this book. When you read this book in 10 years, you're going to be able to pick up on these things probably a little bit better and it will make a little bit more sense. So I think it's going to age really well because of those elements to it. Mm -hmm. Another uh, element of it uh, being that we don't need to fit the mold. Um, we can strike out on our own. We can go and not to spoil it, make another tribe. We're we're on our own. We have to figure it out. We we need a little bit of help, but we we can get there together if we do it together. Um, that aspect of the book uh, really it, it felt warm towards the end. Obviously, the end happens, but um, the the whole time the book is creeping towards well, what's gonna what are we gonna do? Like, what are we together going to do how can we mere mortals 
uh, do without the assistance and the assistance comes and well, now we, now you need to fall into these categories. Well, I don't want to fall into those categories. So being able to, to uh, break the mold, essentially, uh, mm-hmm. I, I loved that aspect of it as well. Um, like you say, the, these marginalized groups, um, you're, you're free, go do it on your own and they have to figure it all out. Well, when we work together, we can figure it out together in the better way. Yes, definitely. Okay, so yes, Jeremiah, that was, yes. Um, so Matthew, we were- One thing I do, do also wanna point in here though, and in, in thinking about it, there's a really poignant message in that Hippolyta, when creating your own tribe says, you're not going to define me by one thing, yeah. right? Which, which I think is a really, again, it's very present, current, however you want to call it. I think it's a very strong message in saying just because things have been done a certain way forever and you are putting a label on me to be one thing or another thing, I'm not going to be. I'm going to be all the things. I'm going to be multidimensional and you're not going to have to. And I'm going to challenge the structures of your society about that. And what's really lovely is the response is, cool, we never thought of that before. Way to go, enjoy. Like, and that's a really hopeful and positive message for sure. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me um, it, because I, I feel like this, even more than the first one, is something that you can read, you can, you can do, um, obviously you can do a reading about women or you can do a reading about trans people, or you can do a reading about people of color. Um, But to me, it's kind of this, it's so much more because it's about sort of not only how we treat each other, but how we treat each other within these groups. And one of the things that was really interesting, one of the questions that I had, um, so um, Matthew, you were a tribe of Athena. Are you still feeling like a tribe of Athena after you've seen uh, Helene? Oh, wow. Sorry. When you said you are a tribe and I was just like, do I need my Jewish hat on right now? Like what's no last time Um, you picked, you said you were a tribe of Athena. That's true. I'm still a tribe of Athena. Let's be very clear. I'm, I'm Athena all day long. Helene forever. Hell yeah. Okay. Even though she couldn't picture a bear flying at first. Yeah. That's very much like me. Okay. I'm not Uh, a visual person. Okay. That is totally fair. Jeremiah, you were tribe of Antiope. I think I still would be. Um, although uh, Artemis is really uh, making me warm up to her. Um, but yeah, still yeah. Antiope. Uh, and Nick, you were the, the tribe of, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, you did say tribe of Artemis and I said Antiope because I went right for the, the queen of the tribe. Um, Nick, you were tribe of Aphrodite. Are you still feeling like that after seeing uh, Pythia uh, in this issue? It's a tough one, but I, I think so. I, okay. I think I think I'm still in there. Um, had a moment to reflect, but no, I, I'm still there. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. All right, good. Um, okay, I'm gonna say the line that broke my heart. Um, because I, I feel like it's good for us to zigzag and back, zigzag, zigzag back and forth between large topics and small topics. Um, the line that broke my heart, I have done something, something that 
that you regret, why not simply say that you have lived? It means the same. Ugh. Ugh. That one cuts, if, that one cuts so well. For me, it was up there with what is grief if not love persevering? I, I gotta admit, it's up mm. there with the, it's up there with that. Um, did anyone else have lines that struck them? That one was obviously the hardest hitting I feel in, in the series thus far. Um, because it's something that everyone can relate to, but it's also Hippolyta saying, like, I can't do this because mm -hmm. of my past transgressions. And everyone's saying, everyone has past transgressions. Like, you can do this. You are better than your past decisions. So, yeah, I, I think that is the slam dunk of the whole thing. It was, yeah, that one definitely, I had to pause for a minute. Yeah, and I, I think it, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Matthew. No, I was just going to say, I also love that moment because it feels like it's the moment where Hippolyta understands what forgiveness is and that she can be forgiven and therefore the power of forgiveness that becomes mm -hmm. a real tenet of the Amazons under her rule and her tribe, as it were. So I feel like that's it's it's a great line to, to begin with, but I think it's such a pivotal moment in the character's journey, but also historically seeing what the Amazons become under her for so long, because that, that is the moment. That is the moment where she understands the true power of it and that forgiveness can be freeing and empowering as well. And I think that's a really crucial moment for so See, many reasons. Okay, that's interesting because I love that reading, but it's not how I read it. So about five, 10 pages previously, there's that moment where, cause it seems as if Antiope is narrating the story and it says, um, you know, uh, our scholars debate the exact moment Hippolyta became an Amazon. Was it when she set her heart upon a river in a basket, yada, yada, yada. Um, Hippolyta became an Amazon the only way a mortal woman can. She became an Amazon when she remembered who she was already. And for me, the minute she says that line, the minute someone says to her, oh, you regret, why not just say you have lived? To me, that's when she becomes an Amazon because it's about understanding that you are worth more than what the larger society is telling you. Am I just am I just crazy? Do I just have Viola Davis in my head all the time going, you are worthy? No, I think I think you're you're right on that point for sure. I think that may have been the the sole intention of that exchange. Um, but yeah, I I missed that line first reading. So yeah, that, that definitely is the moment because that's when she accepts being the queen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, okay. Now let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go. Let's move forward into what I think is one of the most fascinating things and why I want to kind of, why I think it's kind of impossible to discuss uh book one without discussing book two without discussing book one, which is um, the line is the Amazons are birthed. It says there is no innocence in them. Vulnerability comes later when it is cultivated and it's earned. And it's fascinating to me that Philippus stops uh, that young Amazon from killing someone, from killing that, that kid. And it kind of comes back and bites them in the ass, but it fascinated at this sort of, because they're kind of what, you know, six months old, a year old, the Amazons essentially. And it it is this 
how do we as humans, how do we as humans, as adults, learn the compassion that we forget that we had as children? Nick, I'm going to throw this one to you because you look horrified that I'm going to ask you this question. That is a, that's a tough question to dig into. Um, but there's, I want to go back to the previous question because it kind of segues into this a little bit. Um, the line that stuck with me, maybe not for the best of reasons, uh, came at the end where um, you have the exchange between Zeus and Apollo and says, this is how the goddesses mean to make their point, to pervert the natural order of things. It was one of the most heavy-handed lines that I got into, like the book. It may take a step back and say, okay, this is when this is when the point comes where it's like, did you not pick up on things, you know, in every page leading up to this? Here is where I will make sure that you take away something that this book needs to talk about in this disrupting the natural order of things, but necessarily who is setting the natural order of things and why there's this disruption to begin with. And I think when we get into that idea of learning compassion and learning what a natural order is and how that's dictated, we start to understand the importance of that exploration in the story. So it becomes sort of this definition of the human condition um, through a lens of all these mythic, you know, goddesses and gods and all these stories that are grander than life that are exposing uh, existential truths or human truths about these things. And I think we, we get to see that almost where I felt like it was a little too heavy handed to the end to be like, hey, did you not catch it? They're perverting the natural order of things. OK, um, see, that's I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. That's that's really where I was just like, OK, I, I get it. I do. I get it. See, and it's interesting because I've been reading a fair amount of of I don't want to say lost history, but lost history and how much how often women have been erased from history, how often queer people have been erased from history, you know, and it's everything from uh, one of the wealthiest and most powerful kings in Africa who was openly bisexual to all sorts of matriarchal societies and kandakes and um, it just sort of erased consistently. Yes, actually, now that you pointed out, a little heavy-handed, but I'm actually kind of okay with that. Yeah, it certainly makes the ending stick. Um, when you need stakes, there they are. You know, mm-hmm. that's you know they they come in right at that time. Uh, so I think you know when we look at that, like going back to to this question of you know the importance of that and how we see that exploration of how do you find this this empathy that you know is lost when this with this coming of age, um, we get to see not just that happen in almost real time here, uh, we get to see the context of what creates that situation. And it gives us a chance to sort of analyze the, almost how it relates to our own society and how you can grow up and have those experiences and come away with that takeaway. Um, But it's also what leads to that being pretty heavy handed because you lose some of that nuance in that. Mm -hmm. Um, So Jeremiah, you are one of the kindest and most lovely human beings to ever walk the earth. So I think if anyone can teach us how to be compassionate and loving, I believe it's you. That is a Um, very kind thing to say. And it's interesting because if you read, if you read sort of the, the regular, regular in air quotes, Wonder Woman, so much of it is about the compassion of the Amazons, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I, you know, going into book three, I think we're about to see that compassion you know, 
fire back in their faces and we, oh, I guess we can't ever show it again. Um, is there enough compassion in comics? Uh, no. <laughs> not in comic fandom, that's for sure. Definitely not in comic fandom. Well, that's a separate conversation and one that um, I'll need to have after several beers. With, with many comics, uh, mainstream comics at least, because everyone is trying to, to sell a product essentially, um, compassion is is not something that's touched on enough. Um, to get into compassion with uh, comics, you have to go into more of the indie stuff, more of the biographical stuff. Um, and the fact that there is, that, well, the start of showing compassion uh, in this quote-unquote superhero series um, is a nice change of pace um, from most of the stuff that's on the shelves right now. Um, mm -hmm. There, there needs to be more compassion in comics. I fully agree that there needs to be more passion in comics as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, I, I think, I think that there needs to be more. I think the, the idea of showing mercy is going to be their downfall because of one person's mistake is going to be really interesting when it comes into to book three and for the rest of the series, which I'm hoping that we get the full series, which again, if we don't, that's a failed compassion in comics. Um, and Matthew, time to put you on the spot, my my good friend. Um, so- Like you uh, haven't already? I'm very confused. I never, I'm always kind to you. Yes, I'm almost I always kind to you. Um, but so last time, we, when we talked about book one, I opened it up by saying, I think this is going to be something that is taught in, in, in graphic novel classes for a very long time. And you said, uh, no, I want to wait and see. So now that you still have the first seeing. Yeah, you're still waiting and seeing. Absolutely. So reading I, the, reading gotta the see, second. I got to see where this goes. I, so reading the second one didn't make you go back and read the first one and kind of change your thoughts or anything. Nope. No. Did you go Not back? Yet. Did you go back and read the first one when you read the second one? No. You didn't. No. Not at all. No. Really? No. It's that's not this job. The job is to get me with a beginning, middle, and ending. If you're gonna come out in a in a format like this, your job is not to make me go back and have to read the first one to know what's going on in the second. I should read I should remember enough or this book should give me all the setup necessary to have a beginning, middle, and end to it. So no, I didn't okay. go back and read the book. I am, I am going to get angry and growly and push back on this. I don't think that's the job of something like this. I think the, the job, and I, I might agree with you in a monthly book, but when I'm reading something like this, I think it's the job to make me go back to the first book and go, what what where are you filling in the tapestry you know what what pictures did you start in the first one that i can't see until i get to the second one and then when the third one comes out going back nick jeremiah who's right matthew or me oh no you're the That's host, such a so you're right <laughs> yeah there's a power dynamic here that you're leaning on okay that is not true you know that i do not I wield my power to with... Play, to play devil's advocate. 
<laughs> play devil's advocate or Matthew's advocate. Did, did Matt, do you feel that issue two did its job getting you with a beginning, middle, and end? Um, I, I, yeah, I think overall, I think overall, like I didn't feel lost. And the first issue had made enough of an impression on me that I remembered, you know, who the basic characters were. I think those first couple pages, again, do a great job sort of setting up the world, who the major players are. So, yeah. And, and to Nick's point, the end of the book gives you the stakes. It gives you a, a bit of a cliffhanger on where to come in. So I actually think in many ways that this is a more successful installment from a structure perspective than the first one was. Um, and, and the first one for me still reads like it was meant to be chapter one of a giant novel versus this, which actually feels a little bit more self-contained or structured in such a way that it's you know meant to be a complete course of a meal, so to speak. But isn't that how every comic book, like, let's say somebody jumps in, you know, let's say, you know, oh, new creative team, new person, whatever. Isn't it always the first chapter of a giant novel? Isn't that the point of an ongoing serial? So that when you are seeing it, you're going, oh, wow, this happened back in this issue, in, you know, issue 122 and now I'm on issue 137 and I totally get that. I mean, is it that's how comic books became what they became because Claremont was doing that with X-Men. Wolfman was doing that. Wolfman and George Perez, the genius that is George Perez, we love you. Um, but th that's what they were doing with those books. That's how comics became pop culture. Because it was that. Am I maybe I'm I I wanna say maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. You're but but here's the thing. There is there is a level of serialization, but it is an episodic form of storytelling. Therefore, it has to work as a single episode in and of itself. And there needs to be some level of catching up the reader in each chapter that you're in. So that they no, I, I no, I what I I understand that. What I'm saying is, it doesn't get into the end of a run or the end of a TV show, make you want to go back and watch the first part of it, so you can have a different experience with it. Doesn't I watching? I agree wholeheartedly. Right. That's what I'm. But that's what I'm saying. I'm saying the second one didn't make you want to go back and reread the first one. And no, because I'm not at the end. When I get to the end, I should want to go back to the beginning and read it all over again. That's the goal. But I'm not at the end. I'm not at the end of something. It doesn't feel like the end of anything. I have to tell you, when I buy my Wednesday books, I go back and read the previous issue before I read the never. issue. Never. I never do that, ever. I, okay. I not both, even with Batman? When, no. When the story is over, when the arc is over, I will go back and reread. I never go back in the middle of an arc and reread the previous issue. I, you have more space. <laughs> you have probably have more space in your apartment than I do. But my rule is, if I'm not going to read it more than once, it doesn't come into the apartment because I don't have the space for it. Um, Nick, you look like them. I buy digitally, so I don't need to worry about the space. <laughs> there you go, um, Nick. You looked like you were about to have a stroke there for a second when Matthew said he doesn't go back and reread the the issues. Are you are you it's all right? It's a it's a tough one. I I think mine comes down to sort of 
less of a historical take on what got comics to where they are, but more so where entertainment is at now. I consume a lot of content um, outside of social media of hours and hours of that. Um, so many comics, TV shows, films where I feel like I'm constantly behind. When there's a wait, like what we had between issue one and two here, I'm definitely going back to the first issue because I've consumed so much content that even if the first issue did its job and said, okay, here's what you remember, and I remember those glorious pages, I want an experience that goes from this book one right into book two. And when I get book three, I'll probably go back through, I'll skim through one, read two a little closer, hit book three. Um, and it's part of why I arguably didn't enjoy book two as much. Um, I agreed what's one of the first things Matthew said was the the weight was actually beneficial here because had I read them really close, I may not have liked it as much. And I was in, the, I'm in that position. That's, I think Matthew was speaking directly to the experience that I had because of me going back and reading these books. Yeah, I, I have to say you're both wrong. Um <laughs> I, because to me, it's almost like it's a completely different, it's, it's like making, I, I don't even know how to, it, it's like making two different chocolate cakes with two different recipes where one's flourless and one's not. They're just both, they're both nummy. They're just nummy in a different way. Um, I will say, here is the one problem that I had with this book. Prepare yourselves because it's shocking. I'm upset with myself that I read Jean Ha's process pages because I really wish that I had not. I wish that I had just gone back and discovered all of those hidden faces and, and all of the, I wish I had done that on my own. I really wish I had. Um, and that was my one disappointment with this book. Did wow. anyone else feel that way? Those faces made me stop. Every time I saw one, it made me yeah. stop and like reevaluate what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't, I didn't get to the end before I realized those. Yeah, no, I was paying attention, John, and saw that along the way. So I, I didn't feel spoiled at that point. Like I'd missed something because I was actually, you know, involved in the reading of the book and picking up what it was throwing down. Okay. So I don't know what to tell you. So first of all, rude. Secondly. I saw them, but I didn't see all of them. And when I got to the end of the book and I was reading the process pages, I was like, oh shit, how did I miss that? And I had was going back and rereading and and I almost wish it had been more of a mystery where I kind where I, I it, he had simply said, Hey, there's a lot of hidden faces in here, go back and find them. And I would have that would have been like a a, a thing for me. But I, you know. That's just me. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. See, for me, the the thing that I didn't love about the book, I, I didn't think the coloring was a hit on every page. Um, and I, I wonder if part of it was the size of the panels or the size of the pages themselves. I think there were there were moments where it was a little too dark in places. I think that there were some color choices that that didn't always hit for me. I think there were some others that absolutely were incredible, but I felt like the the quality of the coloring was a bit inconsistent throughout the book. Um, that was that was my my only real sort of negative here. I completely disagree with you on that front. Sure. I loved how the coloring went literally like that through the whole book where it was the bright, beautiful colors in the beginning and the bright, beautiful colors at the end. 
and we got to the deepest, darkest parts when they felt the most kind of alone and on their own. And then it started to brighten up a little bit when they, when they quote unquote found their way getting into the new tribe. I love how the colorist did that. Um, See, I actually wish it was brighter on the first page, the first double page spread introducing the gods. I actually wish that like, not, not, not so much that was brighter, but that there was a little bit more saturation between the background and the, the outlines of the heads. I feel like I spent a little too much time trying to squint and see the facial features a little bit more. And, and I don't know that that was really something intentional. And cause I love on page, what is it? Not two, three, four, five, the big double page with Hera where it does go from darker to light. I think that's great. I really like the coloring choices there. I love the scene with Artemis um, in the woods. I think the coloring is stunning um, on that one. I think that there are just other moments in there where it, it doesn't quite hit for me. See, I think the first two pages, the coloring on the first two pages was very deliberate because it's coming from the Amazon's point of view and the Amazons are only allowed to be at to to move at night. That is when they are awake. That is when their life is happening. So to me... Well, only one tribe does that. Only no, one they, tribe moves at night. No, they all do that. They all sleep during the day. Wait, no, no, no. I thought they, they specifically in that beautiful map spread, they talk about one tribe that's like, that's their job to be during the day hiding in the blades of grass. No, that's where they take, that's where they take their rest during the day. Hmm. Um, So to me, having the color in those first, in that first double page spread coming from the candles and the, the torches on the bottom where the bottom parts of the goddesses are lit and then it goes, gets darker and darker. I I'm, I'm going to agree with Jeremiah wholeheartedly on this one. Nick, save us. Break, be the tiebreaker. Well, actually, mm. guess, I guess technically you wouldn't be the tiebreaker. You would be the tie starter. But go ahead and break yeah, it in. That's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't have as many problems with the coloring. I think there were some instances of it being a little too dark or anything. Um, but I, I want to take a moment uh, because I know we're, we're closing in on our hour here. And I don't want to let this episode go without at least talking about my favorite thing of the, the book. Uh, I touched on a little bit at the end of the disruption of of the natural order of things, but we haven't really talked about the overlay of uh, what we call the golden ratio, divine proportion, the Fibonacci spiral that happens uh, with Hera. It's on a few different pages. Uh, it's something that I thought was a, a slight bit of nuance that caught me off guard because they don't really draw a lot of attention to it, but it's something where the placement of it is really interesting because it's a predictable formation in nature um, overlaid over these goddesses who are sort of meant to be upending the the natural order of things. So it's almost a designation of the natural order of disruption. And there's something really exciting there that gets into the mythology of Amazons and gets into, you know, what brings us all coming back to this, of this idea that we know that they're on the right path. We know that they're disenfranchised people. We know that this is something that is an important story worth telling in a natural occurrence. Mm. And it's being presented as something that's upending or disruption or chaos. And we're able to see something, just this mathematical equation that is sort of presented in the visual form that's, you know, I think it's often described as the mathematic and artistic uh, visualization of perfection. And I really (laughs) love that as an overlay into where it was placed very specifically in the book 
to set that indication and, and nod to it at certain times leading up to that finale. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's where I come into that last line being a little heavy handed because it's like, hey, did you not catch that? Um, it, it sort of sets that up to where you can see that and you get that comparison. Uh, but it's something that was probably one of my favorite things of the book that the first book didn't actually do. Um, the first book was outright gorgeous. As soon as you open it, you catch in all that detail, you catch in all the amazingness that is those pages. But the nuances of something like this, of that golden ratio overlaid on certain pages that contributes to the, the narrative themes that are sort of tied up in this neat bow at the end was probably my favorite experience of the book. I wonder if that line was heavy handed because Zeus is such a dunce. Hmm. It almost as if he has to be like, oh, two plus two does equal four. You guys, two plus two equals four. Like, I'm almost wondering if like, that's where that comes from. Um, Could be, could be. Um, Okay, so I'm gonna, um, so, I'm going to ask a question here. Uh, I'm going to ask two questions and we're, let's, let's see what the thought is. Jeremiah, let's start with you. So you're working in a comic shop. Would you A, recommend this and B, recommend it to a new comic reader? Uh, yes, I would definitely recommend this to uh, the majority of my subscribers. Any of them that I feel that were, are interested in either the art of storytelling or the, the just distinguishable art. Um, even though we can all agree that Gene Ha is not uh, Phil Jimenez, I still think that the artwork is, does an amazing job for the story. For new readers, I would have them try something else first, only because you don't start a new reader with Watchmen. You don't start someone with the... Ri- That's why appetizers are appetizers and not desserts. This yeah. is very much a very rich, uh, flavorful, meaty... Uh, story, I would not start a new reader on it. Okay. That's my take. Matthew? 100% agree with Jeremiah on this one. Um, Would I recommend it? Absolutely. Would I recommend it as someone's first comic? No. Um, Would I recommend it as someone's first Wonder Woman comic? No. But do I think it's absolutely going to be a must read for Wonder Woman and superhero fans in general? Probably. So, yeah. Okay. Nick, how about yourself? Oh, goodness. I'm going to agree with Matthew pretty much wholeheartedly. It would not be the first Wonder Woman book I'd recommend, but it would be eventually a book that I would recommend purely based on number one strength. Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, number two is the book you want to stick around for, but I I would say that this is ultimately going to be a series that's worth recommending, um, not for new readers, though. And I am going to actually disagree partially, partially with all of you. One, I would totally recommend this book, but if someone came in and was like, I'm not into comics, I would say, what do you like? What are you into? If it's somebody who wants to explore sort of literary um, or somebody who maybe is a graphic designer who wants to look at different types of things, um, it would really depend on the person. So depending on the person, I think I would actually say this could be a good first comic. I'll tell you what, John, depending on how it ends, I might change my mind and and be there with you. But until we know that, I can't make that determination. 
Okay. Comic book day is right around the corner. A bunch of people who never go into comic book stores are going to walk through a comic book store either for the first time or for the only time in the year. But only for free stuff, and then they leave. Well, when I when I ran my free comic book days, I had so many people ask me for suggestions of stuff that would bring them back, and I I don't know if I would suggest this out the gate. Hmm. That's that's my take. It's interesting. Um, so I want to thank you all for joining us. Um, uh, stay tuned for the next Comics Corner when we will be discussing James Robinson's The Scarlet Witch. I believe that is next up on the docket. Um, and come back for Historia 3 when Matthew and I actually managed to figure out how to reach through the screen and smack each other on the back of the head because we're disagreeing so much. Um, well, before all that, uh, Nick, Jeremiah, plug your stuff. Jeremiah, you first. Where can they find you? What are you working on? Uh, social media. Uh, I post on the Rivera Collection almost every day on Instagram. Um, and I still occasionally guest host on Panoids. Uh, we recently did an interview with Terry Moore. Um, and we have another big interview coming up. Um, but I can't say what it is quite yet because it hasn't fully locked in yet. But pay attention to Panoids um, for that. And then Nick? Uh, not a whole lot to plug on my side. You can follow me on my personal socials at Nick Osborne, just NIC. And I'm sure I'll have plenty of hot Valiant takes. So definitely give a follow there. And if you aren't following Valiant Comics, now's the time to plug it, right? So give us a follow, sure. check things out. Lots of things going on. Um, yeah, that's everything. John, what about you? Anything you want to plug? Or uh, I know that you want someone's attention to. Now I know that you want to you want to do your thing, so I'm going to let you do your thing. I do have things to plug. It's true. Um, you can you can find me on social media. Uh, Twitter is at Matthew Klein three sixteen because I am the bottom line uh, when it comes to uh, hot takes on wrestling and clearly on comics. Certainly, hot takes that will get uh, John to try and reach through a screen and murder me. Um, and then on Instagram at Mac the knife, uh, 1116, which I should have been my Twitter handle too, which I was silly. Um, and then yes, uh, just announced, uh, on deadline, uh, my first published comic called crashing is uh, going to be coming out as part of the IDW originals initiative. Tuned on release date, a lot more on up. They respond to me. All are fantastic human beings. Um, and bots. I really appreciate the kindness of the uh, bots on social media as well. Um, so thank you so much for joining us as always, um, Jeremiah, Nick, Matthew. Um, I love how, by the way, how I was like talking about reaching through the screen and smacking Matthew on the back of the head and he suddenly jumps to murder. We'll, we'll have a separate conversation about that. But I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, stay tuned for the next Comics Corner. Follow us on Don't Sue Us, Please. Um, and uh, go read some comics. Go to your local comic store. Ask them what to read. I guarantee you will find something that you love. Um, and if it's not Wonder Woman Historia, um, I will still love you, but I will fiercely disagree with you. Thank you for listening. Have a great night and stay safe.